if you're joining us uh, by podcast this morning or by uh, our app, we're so glad that you're joining us, but I'll tell you, you just missed a great time of worship with our worship leader, Dana Jorgensen, leading us. And Dana, by the way, is going to be playing uh, this week, this Wednesday night, at the Grand Ole Opry again. And he's playing, yeah. He's playing with, is it with Janelle Arthur again, of American Idol fame? And we are, Dana, how's the Get Janelle Arthur to Evansville campaign going? Uh, is that, okay, you'll work on that. He, he just made a promise to me, just right there, that moment, that we're going to have her here. Um, Dana is also tomorrow celebrating his 40th birthday. Would you, would you, yeah, just, that's, he looks really young for four, is it 40? What is it? 31, okay, well, it's about the same, but, because it's all downhill, Dana, from after 30, it's like that, and it's fast, it just goes like that. One more thing I have to tell you. I never embarrass people that are visitors, but I'm going to say one thing. The person who cuts my hair is here today, and I promised that if she comes, that I would tell you guys that she's here. And if you like my my haircut, Lexi Johnson cuts my hair. I'm a little embarrassed to tell you where it is that she cuts my hair at. It's called Beau Now... It's a great place, and I know other men who go, but it, I know it doesn't sound very manly. But Lexi Johnson is here. She's sitting back in the back. I won't make her stand or anything like that, but it's, there she is. It's free advertising right back there, Lexi Johnson. If you need someone to cut your hair, it's Lexi Johnson's the person to go to. She does a great job. Okay. We're in the next last week of a series that we've been in through the summer, and it's called The Legend of Joe Jacobson, uh, about a man named Joseph who is the son of Jacob, who rescued two nations and kept the hope of the Messiah alive. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. And we, I'll meet you there at Genesis chapter 45 in just a moment. I think we all understand, right, that fathers are extremely important to the development and the maturity of a child. If you're old enough to remember, it turns out that Dan Quayle was right about this. Studies have conclusively shown the children who receive higher levels of positive interaction with their fathers um, are healthier and more well-adjusted than children that didn't have a father or who had a bad father. They tend to be more confident and less anxious than kids who did not have a father or who had a bad father. They're better able to deal with frustration, and they're better able to adapt to changing circumstances, and they're better able to gain a sense of independence and identity outside of the mother-child relationship. In addition to all of that, not long ago, the Los Angeles chief of police made this comment. He said, a chief characteristic of boys who join street gangs is the absence of a father. The gangs provide a sense of protection and commitment which an absent father does not. Now, Joseph's father, Jacob, wasn't an absent father, but we have seen throughout this uh, series that he was, he was really a terrible father. He not only had shown favoritism to Joseph at the expense of his older brothers, or at the expense of his older, son, at the expense of his older sons, 
But uh, all of this had created, it had the effect of creating a spoiled and arrogant child in Joseph. And it had created hatred and callousness in the older brothers. And while they weren't officially a gang, they acted a lot like a gang, right? When they first tried to kill Joseph, and then only later decided to sell him to slave traders in order to make a buck off of him, and then lied to their father that Joseph had been killed by an animal. And yet, in the midst of all of this terrible family dysfunction, there is this. God has chosen all of these brothers for greatness. Joseph, as we have seen throughout this series, is going to be a savior for his people. And the brothers are going to be the namesakes for the 12 tribes of God's chosen nation, Israel. And the question that the original readers would have had about all of this is how in the world is God going to use any of these people? Because when we first meet them, they are just really awful people. And the answer, as we saw last week, was that God became the father that they never had. You remember that? Remember us talking about this last week? We said that God became the father that they never had. Or, or maybe a better way to say it was that he became the father beyond their earthly father. And we said last week that God does that with all of, all of those who choose to believe in him through Jesus Christ. He becomes our father beyond whatever earthly father you had. Whether your earthly father was good, bad, not around, whatever, he becomes our father beyond our earthly father, who knows how to nurture us and who knows how to discipline us perfectly. And we said that the Greek word that describes this um, father relationship that God has with his people is the Greek word paideia, which means, practically speaking, what that means for us is that God will bring the external brokenness of the world into relationship with the internal brokenness of your soul in just the right proportions to turn you into someone great. You may have had a terrible father. You may have had an absent father. Or maybe you had a great father. But no matter how good your father was, no one here has been nurtured and disciplined perfectly by their father. And at the moment that you believe in Jesus, your relationship with God changes from, oh, I, you know, I, I think the best way that you can kind of describe it is your relationship changes with God from this distant rumor that there is this God who exists into a very personal relationship with a perfect father who will use all of the brokenness of the world and all of the internal brokenness of your soul to turn you in to someone great. Now, I, I said last week, that uh, last week's sermon was really a two-part sermon. So last week was part one, today's part two. And last week what we focused on is I wanted you to see what God did in the lives of Joseph and his brothers. And we said that what he did was he became the father that they never had. This week, though, I want to focus on how God brought about transformation in Joseph's life and in his brother's lives. And then I also want to focus on why God could do that work in their lives. First, though, I want to go back and I want to reread the passage um, that we saw last week because I want to remind ourselves 
of what happened. If you wouldn't mind, turn to Genesis chapter 45. John, I'll let you take the slide here from, from, from here. Genesis chapter 45, and let's begin reading it, uh, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And so then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one that you sold into Egypt. And now, and this is what's so remarkable about what he says, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. Now, if you were with us last week, you will remember that there was a whole series of events that had led to that moment, that exchange there. You may remember, Joseph had played this game with them. It wasn't a manipulative game. It was a redemptive game. But he played this game with them uh, to ensure that his youngest brother, Benjamin, was alive and also to bring um, uh, reconciliation with his brothers. He wanted there to be reconciliation with them. And so this game, the way it had looked is that he had threatened them and then he put them in prison and then he, then he brought them out of prison, all except one of them, and he let them go free. And then when they came back to Egypt, they returned with their brother Benjamin, but then Joseph set Benjamin up so that Benjamin would, uh, his well-being would be threatened. Until I said that one of his brothers, a guy by the name of Judah, made an astounding offer. And that astounding offer prompted this scene that we just read. And I told you last week, I said, I'll tell you about that this week. And I'll tell you about that offer this week. There is a, there's a method in all of this madness of this game that Joseph has been playing with his brothers. And I want you to see this method because it answers the question, how? How did God change Joseph and how did he change his brothers? And I suspect that when you see the method to this madness, I I think you might even recognize it. Some of you might recognize that this is how God uh, has worked in your life as well. There's, there's a little commentary on the book of Genesis written by a guy by the name of Derek Kidner. And he writes about this method that Joseph uses with his brothers. And here, here's what he says. He says, at first sight, the rough way in which Joseph handles his brothers has the look of vengefulness. And that's kind of how it looks, right? I mean, it does kind of feel that way. But he says, nothing could be more natural... In other words, nothing would be more natural than than for him to be vengeful to his brothers. But he says nothing further from the truth. 
He says, behind the harsh pose, there was warm affection, and after the ordeal, overwhelming kindness. He says, even the threats were tempered with mercy, and the shocks that were administered took the form of embarrassments rather than blows. Just how well-judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of quite new attitudes in the brothers. And I want you to read this. As the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. I love how he describes that. I think, that's, I think you can kind of summarize how God changes Joseph and his brothers. It's with an alternating mixture of sun and frost, or maybe a better way to put it would be an alternating mixture of truth and love. It's a fascinating image, this image of alternating sun and frost. Because I don't know if you've ever noticed, but what happens when something gets really hot and then it gets really cold and then it gets really hot and then it gets really cold and it you know, keeps doing that? What happens? Well, eventually it cracks, right? Like the ground would crack. The ground will crack if that happens. And like even something as hard as a stone will crack if that happens, if it just keeps happening. Even a, a hard rock will break. And that's exactly how God worked with Joseph. Do you remember? When he was working with Joseph, he, he does the same alternating mixture of sun and frost. One minute, Joseph was down in a cistern and he was facing certain death. And then the next minute, he's brought up. But then he's sold into slavery. And then he's, even in slavery, he's, there's this privilege. And then, and, then, and then the privilege goes away and he's down in a dungeon. And then he gets privilege in the dungeon. But then he meets some guys that he thinks might get him out and they forget him. And that's the pattern. Sun and frost, sun and frost, sun and frost. And that's the pattern that Joseph uses with his brothers, not maliciously, but redemptively. And so the answer to the question of how God changed Joseph and his brothers is just what we said. It's an alternating mixture of sun and frost, or, or a better way to put it might be truth and love. It's both of them. Notice, it's not truth without love. And it's not love without truth. It's truth and love, frost and sun, convicting them and humbling them and then graciously forgiving them and encouraging them. So Joseph alternates this frost and sun, truth and love throughout this whole account. And the genius of the method, as Derek Kidner pointed out, is in the brother's response. When Benjamin is caught, you remember I told you this last week, he was caught with the royal silver cup. When he's caught with the royal silver cup in the bag, Joseph had put it there, right? I mean, he didn't really steal it, but Joseph put it there for this purpose. What Joseph has done when Benjamin gets caught with that is that he has masterfully set the brothers up with the very same situation that they had been in with him all those years ago. And the question is, will they do the same thing that they did with Joseph? Will they act callously to save their skin and let Benjamin rot in jail? Or has this frost and sun, frost and sun, frost and sun, has this changed them in any way? And this 
is the climax of the story. There they are. They're standing in front of Joseph. And Benjamin has apparently been caught red-handed. And Joseph has threatened to make Benjamin a slave forever and let all of the other brothers go free. What's going to happen? Watch, I want you to see this. This comes before the passage we just read, but I want, I want you to see this. I want you to see what happens. Then Judah, remember I said that Judah does something so awesome. Watch this. Then Judah went up to him, Joseph, and he said, Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. See, he says, he says let me be the slave forever and let my brother go home. And then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. That's the astounding offer that Judah makes. This alternating frost and sun or this truth and love has brought about a significant change in these brothers and in Judah particularly. Instead of, instead of self-interest, like he had acted with so many years ago, I didn't tell you guys this part of the story, but many years ago, when this whole thing with Joseph went down, Judah was the one that wanted him killed. He was the one that said, let's kill him. Judah was the one who said, let's kill him. And now, as a result of this whole process, Judah is the one who's saying, I'll pay the price for my brother's crime, what he thought was his crime. I'll pay the price for that crime. What I, what I really want you to see is that this method that God had used in the brother's lives through Joseph, I mean, God had used Joseph to bring all this about. This, this method gave these brothers something that they deeply deeply needed. And what was it that these brothers, what did they deeply need? Well, let me tell you, a, a person who believes in truth without love, you know what they would say that they deeply needed? They would say, uh, they would say, they need justice. Make them pay. Prison, an eye for an eye. That's what they would say. Truth, no love. Like legalistic, um, self-righteous religious people would say that. You, if you, you, are you guys familiar with Westboro Baptist Church and all those people who do the protests and stuff? That's what they would say. Justice, an eye for an eye. That's what you give them, justice. But here's the thing about justice. You could throw these guys in jail, and yes, they would pay the They'd pay the penalty, but here's the thing. It wouldn't change them internally. I mean, they'd get out however many years later, they've paid the penalty, but it hasn't changed them inside. Justice. On the other hand, okay, so the, the truth without love people, I guess we could call them truthers. <laughs> anyway, the truthers would say just justice. On the other hand, the love without truth people, you know what they would say? 
they would say, oh, just my God is a God of all love and he doesn't judge anyone. Just forgive them and let bygones be bygones. That would, that's what they would say, truth. They'd say love without any truth. But that won't really change the brothers either because you know what happens often with that kind of thing is that you know you likely just walk away and you're just glad you didn't get justice, but it doesn't change you. You just go back and do the same thing again, right? Here's what they needed. Here's what they needed. They needed healed. They didn't need just justice, and they didn't need just forgiveness. They needed healed. They needed healed of the hatred and the callousness of their hearts. And that's what the truth and love and frost and sun did. It, it broke these brothers open. Like it, like, it, like it breaks open a, a hard rock. It broke open the hardness of their hearts and it broke them open to God so that they could be healed of the hatred and the callousness of their hearts. And Judah's willingness to sacrifice himself and pay the penalty for his younger brother Benjamin was a demonstration that this healing had happened. One of the criticisms that I often hear uh, about Christianity is that you can ask God to forgive you, and no matter what you've done, he'll forgive it, and then you can just go back and keep doing it again, and then you can ask for forgiveness again, and then just, you know, he'll forgive you, and then you just go back and do it again, and you just keep doing this ad infinitum. No, that is not the God of the Bible. Yes, God does forgive, absolutely. He forgives people through Christ, but he wants to do more in your life and in my life than just forgive. He wants to heal you. He wants to heal me. He wants to heal us of all of the internal brokenness of your life, some of which you may recognize. There may be parts of you that you recognize are badly broken, and then there may be parts that you don't recognize that are badly broken, but you don't see it. God wants to heal you of all of that, of the racism and the callousness and the narcissism and the lust and the jealousy and the, con- the need that you have to control everybody around you. Your addictions, which amount to idolatry, and all the rest of your brokenness. God wants to heal you of all of that. Because all of that stuff drains your life of joy and meaning. And God wants to heal you. And he wants to turn you into someone great. That's what he wants to do. He wants to turn you into a person of greatness. But to do that, he has to do more than just give you justice. And he has to do more than just give you love. He has to do both, truth and love, justice and forgiveness. But here's the question. This is the question you've got to be asking. Why? Why can God become our father? Why can he, why can he discipline us? You know, do the paideia, uh, excuse me, the paideia thing. Why can he do that? Why can he nurture us and discipline us? rather than do just justice on us and punish us. Why? Does he not care about justice? Does he just kind of wink his eye at the stuff we do and just say, eh, no big deal, and just push it off to the side? Does he do that? Well, absolutely not. Here, think about the story for just a moment. Just think about the story. You probably noticed in the story that Joseph 
he wants to reveal himself to his brothers throughout the story. He keeps, if you, if you, if you follow along through the story, you notice he keeps breaking into tears. He wants to reveal himself to the brothers. He wants to be reconciled to his brothers, but he can't. Not until something happens. Not until Judah does what he does. Not until Judah offers to pay for Benjamin's crime himself. And then justice would be served. Forgiveness could be offered. And reconciliation could happen. Now, here's the thing. For those of you who don't think that the Bible makes any sense and who don't think that the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, have anything to do with each other, I want, you to, I want you to hear this. Guess who is a direct descendant of the one who was willing to pay the penalty for his younger brother, Benjamin, Judah. Guess who is a direct descendant of Judah? Jesus. He was from the tribe of Judah, a direct descendant of Judah. Why can God become a father to his people? And why can he discipline us rather than punish us? Here's the answer to the question. Because a greater Judah, Jesus, namely, a greater Judah, Jesus, willingly sacrificed himself for the sins of his younger brothers and sisters. That's you and that's me. And because Jesus did die on a cross, Judah offered, Joseph didn't have to take it because the crime wasn't real. Your sin, my sin, is very real. The crime is very real against God. And Jesus did willingly hang on a Roman cross for your sins and for mine. And in so doing, justice was served, forgiveness can be offered, and relationship and redemption and reconciliation with God is possible. That's why he can become our father. Do you see, do you see that the gospel is the ultimate sun and frost that will break you open to God. Nothing else will break your heart open to God like the gospel of Jesus Christ will. Because of the cross, God can be absolutely just and absolutely loving with us at the same time. Here's what man-made religion says. All man-made religion, whatever name you give it, you can call it Islam, you can call it Buddhism, you can call it, you can call it Mormonism, you, anything you call it. Here's what man re- Man-made religion always says, it says, if you live a good enough life, and if you're a good enough person, God will be pleased with you and take you to heaven. That's what all man-made religion says. But let me tell you something. That will never soften your heart. It never will. Man-made religion will never soften your heart. Here's why. It hardens it because it makes you feel superior like Joseph was. Look at me. (laughs) I am way better than you are. I am such a good person. Look at me. See, it makes you feel superior to other people. Or if it doesn't make you feel superior, like if you don't, if you're one of those, there are some people that are like real religious, really good people. 
and they feel superior. But if it doesn't make you feel superior, it's because you didn't live up to the standards, right? You can never live up to those standards, whatever the standards are. You're like, I always fall short of the standards, whatever they are. And what that does is it destroys your spirit. It doesn't break you open to God. It destroys your spirit. Because, and, and, and you will always hate yourself. You'll always be down in the dumps. And you'll always be jealous of other people who are better than you in your eyes. Just like Joseph's brothers were. Joseph felt superior. His brothers felt beaten down by Joseph's superiority. Neither one. Religion, religion will leave you in one of those two places, but it won't open your heart to God. It just won't. But the gospel does something completely different than religion. On the one hand, it gives you truth, and I'm going to tell you, it gives you a whole lot of truth It gives you a whole lot of frost because it says, essentially, you are more wicked than you ever dared believe. That's the frost. That's cold. (laughs) But on the other hand, it tells you, you are more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the sun. The frost and the sun. Because Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, In the gospel, you are saved by grace. Which means, you're so bad that Jesus had to die for you, that's a lot of frost. But you're you're so absolutely loved that he was glad to die for you. And that's a whole lot of sun. You see, religion... It either makes you feel superior or it makes you feel inferior. The gospel does something completely different. It breaks you open so that your heart can be healed by God and he can turn you into a person of greatness. So how are you supposed to respond to all of that frost and sun? How do you respond to all of that? Well, on the other hand, on on the one hand, if you've never come to a point in your life where you've said, look, I, I believe that Jesus, Jesus is the justice. Jesus paid the price for my sins. If you've never come to that point, today would be a great day to believe. If you notice on our banners around the room, the first one says believe. Because before you can ever really enter into the community of the local church, and enter into the community of believers in Jesus Christ, you must first believe. And then your relationship with God changes. He becomes a father to you, a very personal father. And if you've never come to that point that you believe, today, right now, in the privacy of you see, you don't have to walk an aisle, you don't have to raise your hand, whatever it is that you may have experienced in other places. Just in the privacy of your seat, say, I'm a sinner, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the punishment for my sins. Jesus took it. He was the justice. But know this, he was also the love. He was glad to hang on a cross for you. Believe. That's how you respond. Here's something else. For those of you who have already believed, I want you to know this. I want you to know that God is committed to your greatness. So look beyond the trials, 
Look beyond all the stuff that you may even be going through right now or it may happen tomorrow. I don't know. But whatever the trials are that you're in, I want you to see the purpose in them. I want you to see God's hand in them. Not that God caused them, but I want you to understand that he uses them. And I want you to reject the cynicism that is natural when you encounter trials. I want you to reject the nihilism that many people in our culture, uh, whether they know it or not, espouse. Reject that and open your eyes to your Father who is using the brokenness of the world in just the right proportions with the brokenness of your soul to turn you into someone great, greater than you would have ever dreamed. That's what he wants to do. Open your eyes to your Father. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I feel certain that there are people here today that, you know, they've probably never come to a place in their life where they have believed in Jesus. They've never understood that he was the justice for their sins and that he was also the love for their sins. He was the perfect balance of truth and love. Lord, would you bring those people this morning to a place where they understand what Jesus did on the cross for them like they've never understood it before. Lord Jesus Christ, for those who've already made that decision but are here this morning and maybe they're going through very difficult times, Lord, would you bring them to a place where they can see beyond their trials and they can see you as their father working in those trials and using that in combination with the internal brokenness of their souls to heal them and to turn them into people Lord, we pray this now in the perfect name, the greater Judah, Jesus, who gave himself on a cross for my sins so that justice could be served, and he did it in love. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.